Welcome, beautiful thinkers. I'd like to present this interview with my monk friend, Prajeremy. So previously, I'd only ever referred to him on this podcast as my monk friend, but for whatever reason, Prajeremy has decided to be, be a little less anonymous. He decided that the, the, the times are changing or some, something within him is changing that perhaps he shouldn't avoid certain responsibilities as a monk uh, because he can help people more if people know what his name is, perhaps. <laughs> uh, so, of course, Prajeremy practices as a monk in Wat Tham Krabok in Thailand, which is a, an, an interesting Buddhist temple which is founded by a female monk or a, a nun, depending on how you look at it, about 60 or 70 years ago. Uh, they call her Luang Po Yai. And she founded the temple there, kind of in the middle of the mainland of Thailand in Saraburi province, I think. She founded the temple with her two nephews. And I had the... the pleasure of visiting there and staying there in the temple for a month. Pra Jeremy has been a great teacher for me, taught me a lot about Buddhism, about the, the, the benefits of the practicality of that way of looking at the world, and also about meditation. So after having spent 30 days or so there and practicing meditation in some form every day, day learning about different techniques of meditation i did have a much broader understanding of of what meditation really was so there's certainly an a very important positive influence in my my life also even before then uh pra jeremy's always been very provocative in his thinking so <laughs> it's kind of fascinating <laughs> Prat Jeremy said, we're going to do a kind of experiment in this conversation. <laughs> we're not in, entirely sure if it came off. We're trying to, again, uh, sort of provoke some thought <laughs> by skipping from one subject to the next and going, going on a tangent without providing a, a segue. So, so <laughs> leave the audience to fill in some of the gaps of what is going on in the conversation. I don't know if it came off, but uh, Jeremy suggested that, that you can uh, provide us some feedback. So perhaps you'd like to join the Telegram group. If you go to beautifulpodcast.com and look in the social links tab, you can join us on Telegram and discuss what you heard in the episode. So unlike a lot of these these interviews that I do, Normally, I ask, what was a challenge that you faced in your life? The previous time when I interviewed Pra Jeremy on this podcast, he said, well, I'm not sure if I've ever had a challenge. <laughs> the way that he looks at life now, things don't necessarily seem as challenges. They're just steps in, in the path, just parts of a curious life. <laughs> so... The key theme 
of this discussion is, are you listening? Are you paying attention to the things that are going on around you? And when you do observe things, are you attempting to interpret them, discern about your experience, to put those things into context or find out what they mean or what they might possibly mean and how you can take the some of the gold from from that kind of distillation process so that's that's the idea are you listening and you hear Pra Jeremy saying that a few times i just mentioned if you would like some coaching with me you can go on the the site beautifulpodcast.com use the coupon code beautiful2021 to get 50% off your first coaching session with me and yes let's begin let's let's hear from the monk this is a beautiful thought awesome i'm here with my monk friend known formally as pra jeremy how are you Mr. Jeremy, Mr. J, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm excellent. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. Well, pretty, pretty strange, actually. I had an unusual experience last night. Just like a kind of visitation in the night. It was like there was a ghost or something in my room. And I almost, I, I don't know exactly what happened. I don't, I don't uh, claim to know exactly what happened. But it was almost like I was under spiritual attack. So this is like this entity or group of entities in my room is something was like had the sensation that something was sticking its finger into my heart. And today I went to see my friend Raquel, who she's a kind of spiritual healer. She works with these beings of light, she calls them. And she, she was she did a, a cleansing on me. And she was like, ah, well, they told me it, it was an implant. They were trying to put these these spiritual entities were trying to put an implant in your heart. I'm like, okay, why would they even want to do that? <laughs> uh, it's all kind of weird. But these things happen sometimes. Well, purely on, uh, let's say, creative imaginative level. Yeah. Uh, there is this idea that... Uh, we are kind of like, uh, like this world, the world of action or whatever, is, mm. uh, is, is like a sport to beings from other realms. Mm. And so they come and sort of like watch it like a, re- like a world-sized reality TV show. Yeah. And so that being the case, like in reality TV shows, they feed off of, like not, not in a vampiric sense, but in, in a, I guess, uh, figurative sense, they feed off our lives and our emotions mm-hmm. uh, so that that being the case having something by analogy like a microphone in your heart mm-hmm. would be something that would create very interesting um yeah whatever in, information stimulus for for uh spectators to uh entertain themselves with all right that's great content that's that's great 7 p.m tv kurt's heart <laughs> Life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, j- sorry, just just jumping around massive tangents. Yeah, uh, <laughs> already. I was talking to a, uh, already. Uh, I was talking to one of my friends about like I guess pl- playful satirical understandings of enlightenment. Hmm. And so there's there are these ideas and a lot of traditions are about renunciation and about uh, avoidance of uh, like s- subjectivity. You you er- er- erode your subjectivity until there's no more subjectivity, and then you have become united with the whole, and that's enlightenment. Mm. Uh, but so the satirical way of looking at it is that each being is a kind of a field reporter for existence. Yes, and depending on the kind of reporting you do, you that's that re that renews your license, and you keep getting licenses based on the work that you produce as a field reporter. Uh, but if you Wait, stop making that interesting be like reporting, a, uh, reincarnation or what? Yes. Okay. Yes. Reincarnation. All right, got it. <laughs> um, uh, but if you stop making interesting uh, uh, experiences, <laughs> then like they just cancel your contract, and you, you know, you know, you're no longer a field reporter. That's enlightenment. Um, every, like you've just gotten rid of anything that that is interesting or unique or, or yeah, subjective in your experience. And then it's like, yep, there's there's no more. There's no more story here, um, so yeah, you don't ha- you don't have to come back. Uh-huh. <laughs> Your field license cancelled. Well, that's that's interesting. I have heard that people give this kind of history of, say, of of yoga and then and then the the birth of Buddhism, and in Buddhism was kind of in in a sense it, it was really rebellious against the the Hindu tradition because. It, it was like from from the Hindu perspective, Buddhism was like spiritual suicide. It's like you are going to destroy yourself by by moving completely into uh, into nirvana or into nothingness or into you know potential alone or something like that. I'm I'm not sure about that, both historically and conceptually. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult because the hi- history is is obviously uh, biased by its nature. Yeah. So in in Buddhism, when they teach about the rebelliousness of Buddhism, it, it's more just a way of crit- criticizing the, uh, the the Hinduism at the time. Hmm. Uh, and when Hinduism talks about Buddhism, uh, I wanted to use this analogy later because I have a plan. Uh, <laughs> I watched a video. Uh, I watched a video of a, a kung fu instructor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was from one of my friend's schools, and at the time I was training a lot, and so I, I like to steal techniques from other schools. And he gave a demonstration of their particular style of front kick. Mm-hmm. So he went over to a wall and he did his front kick on the wall, and it was like boom, and it made this really dull thump. And his, his balance was excellent and perfect in, in the execution of this kick and the absorption of the contact, you know, um, uh, Newton's law of, um, uh, equal opposite forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he, and so he's like, so this is our kick. And then he did a more Japanese style front kick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it just wasn't very good. It didn't really make a sound and he kind of lost his balance a little bit. And, uh, this was his, comparison between these two kicks and and to him proof of why his school style of kung fu kick was better okay uh but me but me watching it from the outside it just seemed obvious that he did one kick that he had trained intensely and and developed some excellence in Uh and and another kick that that he hadn't right (laughs) and so 
so it wasn't a test between two techniques. It was it was an uh, it was a demonstration of his uh, development in two different techniques. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not sure if one is better than the other mechanically. When I analyze it, it doesn't seem so. It just seems more a question of taste. Mm. Uh, but when you have a perspective like this, um, again, it's hard not to reinforce your perspective. Uh, in psychology, they call this uh, confirmation bias. Right. Yeah, well, uh, I do yeah, try so to avoid having too many strong opinions, which is obviously it's not easy to do. And it is like it, it is also kind of like the problem you're describing with the field reporter. It's like, well, if I get rid of all of my opinions, you know, do I even have a personality or <laughs> what am I? No, I don't think you do. Uh, but but you will still appear to have a personality to people with personalities. Hmm. And in fact, project. your personality... Yeah, no, not just that. Just ah. because the, the residual mechanisms for personality are there to be read. Hmm. Like, a painting, like a painting of a gesture or a facial expression. Mm-hmm. Um, the... the, the the mechanisms of personality will still express. Mm. Uh, they're just not actual. Like a painting isn't actually uh, an emotional expression of the subject of the painting. It's it's using just the the mode of of communication mm. uh, without the original communication existing in in reality. Mm. Uh, but this okay. So let, let's pivot around a, a little bit because we're doing this weird. Uh, kind of freewheely thing. Okay. Uh, I I had an interesting experience uh, a few days ago, and, and it's experience that I have uh, in a in a similar f- form, one way or another, quite often. Uh, and it, it I, I like it because it's highly ironic, uh, but it points to this thing of uh, what what are we doing, and how do we know if what we're doing is working. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the dialogue went something like this. So dot, 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 we're in the middle of a dialogue. Okay. And I said, you aren't listening. Yeah. And the person I was talking to, of course, said, yes, I am. <laughs> sure. Sounds familiar. And to which I pointed out, this proves that you aren't listening. <laughs> because if you, were, if you were listening, you would have considered what I was saying and and you would have thought something along the lines of, "Am I listening?" <laughs> That's true. So there, yeah. there's there's this bizarre irony, and but it's really hard. And so almost every time I've had this conversation, the the person has needed time. In that moment, they can't conceive of the possibility that they are not listening, and they will try and prove the fact that they are listening by. Uh, like repeating the words that I've said, yes, yes. Um, or or trying to reflect a, a meaning of the words that I've said, yes, uh, as if this proves listening, right? Um, and so, yeah, my question is, yeah, we we all kind okay, of so, intuitively know that there's something more to listening than just knowing the words. Well, yeah. So my question is, yeah. and so like this is a radio show. So my question is to the people listening: Are you listening? And, and do you know that you're, li- like, how do you know that you're listening? Hmm. Um, 
because when I started thinking about this question, because uh, uh, quite beautifully, this person came back to me and, and we had a discussion about listening and like they actually raised this question, like, how do you learn how to listen? Hmm. And, uh, but they asked and they really wanted an answer and, and, and they were a little bit annoyed at me when I didn't want to give them an answer. They thought I was being um, obfuscatory or difficult or something. And I, but I gave them an analogy. I'm like, this is like saying, how do you write a book? Um, this kind of question, you can't just answer it simply. Right. And any simple answer that you would give is really glib. Like you could just say, go sit somewhere with a pen and paper and write. Mm. <laughs> and eventually you'll have a book. Like that's true, but it, it, doesn't really answer the question in any meaningful sense. Hmm. Uh, so I started thinking w- w- in wider terms, like what does it mean to listen? And I started looking at the various communities that I'm involved in and have been involved in. And it seemed like this question of listening and people th- thinking that they're already listening uh, was is a mechanical cause of so much stagnation. Hmm. Um, uh, so how, how is it that someone goes to a gym and they train and they train and they train and they train. Um, but after months or even years of training, their body is not strong. Um, hmm. they're, they're not fit. Like, how, how is this possible? In, in a cause and effect world, uh, it doesn't seem to make sense. They're, like, there's something wrong in the mechanism of action. And okay. so in terms of listening, I, I would describe this as this person who was trying to train doesn't know how to listen to their body. Mm-hmm. So... When, when, when you're lifting weights, if you, for example, if you know, if you understand lifting weights and you listen to your body, you can feel when you're doing the exercise correctly and you can feel when you're doing the exercise incorrectly. Hmm. You can feel when you're putting stress on the wrong parts of your body through like structural misalignment during the exercise, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this has kind of obvious results. So you could, like a person who's trying to lose weight, for example, or put on bulk or whatever, they can see there is some level of feedback whereby they can, they can, they have to listen to that because that's reality. And whether or not they, they, uh, they bias it back to their current understanding or try and change something they're doing, there's a mechanism of feedback, uh, a real mechanism of feedback, uh, which someone can listen to and adapt from. Whereas in what we call the spiritual world, so often there isn't a proper, clear feedback loop. So someone yeah. can practice what they consider to be some kind of spiritual exercise for X number of years and not actually be good at what they're trying to do. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, co- because cause, the, cause yeah. more... Sorry, you go. Okay. Because the goal isn't necessarily clear defined, clearly defined... Yes, and and because it, even if the goal is perhaps clearly defined, hmm. uh, there there isn't feedback as to whether or not they are going towards that goal. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so it, it's this question: like, how, what are you doing, and how do you know whether it it's working or not? Uh, what what do you think? <laughs> yeah, that, that's. That's a really tough question because, of course, with with meditation, a lot of the time we we say these things like, "Well, there's no such thing as a good meditator," or, or just, it's not exactly true, but there's there's some important aspect of truth to it. No such thing as a as good or bad session of meditation. It's just what it, exactly what it is. 
Uh, <laughs> I mean, you do notice over the long term if you, if you have a meditation process, uh, practice, then your mind is going to be calmer. Um, so that's, that, that's one indicator. There are the unusual side effects like gifts that, that come along with a dedicated spiritual practice. But th this is kind of, this is actually, it doesn't make it clearer necessarily because sometimes it does, it does confuse the matter because you can think, well, I'm, I'm getting gifts. Like I might say, I'm, I perceive things much more clearly. I'm much more observant. And when, when I watch people, I know I can take a reasonable guess at what their intentions are and this kind of thing. Um, that's a, a, as an example. I mean, this, these things go much deeper than that. But then if we get too wrapped up in those things, that, <laughs> or if we do, if we even start to say stuff like, well, I know I'm progressing spiritually because I have these gifts, then you might fall down the trap of developing an ego around it and of course you you get into trouble and that's a little deviation from the path uh, there's a beautiful story uh from i guess from the point of view of a water wheel mm -hmm. uh, i'm not sure if i've told you this story before yeah you um, have please tell it so yeah, so there's a there's a water wheel in a inside of a water wheel farm. Hmm. So it, it's spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning, and and one day uh, something goes wrong with its axle, mm -hmm. and so it starts spinning in this really weird way, a way that it's never experienced before. Mm -hmm. And so the the person who supervises the water uh, the water wheel farm, they go and they take a a chock and they. Uh, they they jam it into the flukes and stop the wheel from spinning hmm. so that they can do repairs on the axle. And while this is happening, all of a sudden, the, the water wheel experiences stillness for the first time in its existence. Hmm. And it's such a remarkable experience for it to experience this stillness. Uh, so remarkable that it doesn't feel the repairs being done on its axle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but th but the repairs are finished. The chalk gets pulled out, and it starts to spin again. Uh, but now it's trying to recreate that experience of stillness. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't realize that that stillness had a practical reason for it. Mm. So, uh, like from a from a different perspective of practice, uh, th this kind of understanding is maybe what we are looking for. We're looking for the practical uh, cause and effect alterations that happen through practice, not the side effects which are emotion, uh, in the emotional realm. Uh, one of the dangers that a lot of teachers point out about what we call practice is that it, it has to have something that's fundamentally different from entertainment or emotional stimulus. Mm -hmm. So, because, uh, yeah, again, unfortunately, if, if you start observing people in their practice as like case studies, uh, a lot of people will practice so-called spiritual practices, but the outcome of that practice is actually just a form of emotional stimulation. Uh, 
uh, you can sing a song uh, re repetitively, uh, and through that repetition, you get an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. uh, and as, as a true practice, that emotional experience should allow the correction of some kind of axle. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily, because that if, if that experience is being generated and the feedback from it is an emotional stimulus, then now this is just a form of spiritual entertainment. Mm. Uh, and the same thing can happen with a, like contemplation of philosophical or, or esoteric ideas. Uh, it becomes an emotional stimulus and an emotional, uh, an intellectual stimulus and an intellectual entertainment yes. uh, rather than being a practical, functional way of correcting some aspect of a, a being's nature or habits or, or misalignments. Uh, hmm. Oh, uh, this, we have this word uh, or this phrase, counterintuitive. Yes. And uh, I'm, I'm not supposed to object to things, but I have serious objections to the use of this phrase, okay. uh, counterintuitive. It's, it's bizarre uh, because by, by usage, it assumes that intuition is just a group of uh, poorly thought out assumptions that lead to false conclusions. So when something is counterintuitive, it's, it, it, something is not like you would expect it to be if you hadn't thought about it. Yes. And that, so th this to me is dangerous because intuition is nothing to do with this. Um, it, this is counter-assumptive. It's not counter-intuitive. Oh, that's true. Yeah. And, and real intuition is something else. Real intuition is being taught from within. Hmm. Uh, we have this idea that, that th the teacher is inside you. Uh, and the external teacher is a reflection of the teacher inside you. Mm -hmm. Who who has uh, that idea? So, or I guess a lot of traditions. Uh, yeah, pe people who practice. Like at the at the end of the day, uh, I can't I can't think of a tradition that doesn't have this. Mm. And maybe they don't use the word teacher. Um, but you know, uh, whatever the goal is, it's inside you. Yeah. Um, the yeah you you. But anyway. <clears throat> So, but this teacher, like, again, this question, are you listening? Um, do you know how to listen to your intuition, your inner teacher? Uh, do, you, do you know how to listen to your body? Do you know how to listen to your emotions? Uh, because so often we've learned how to misinterpret our experience. Um, one of my friends, when he quit smoking... Um, after a while, he realized that he smoked when he was hungry. He, he didn't realize he was hungry. He craved a cigarette. Right. But when he stopped smoking, he, he realized that what he was feeling was actually hunger. Right. And he, he had changed the meaning of that uh, feeling into craving for a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so are we listening? Uh, are, are we listening? And it's so difficult in modern times because we have all of these uh, scientific concepts. And it's great to be able to test something. Uh, but, but for our test to be accurate uh, and to get proper feedback, don't, like, we need to have a, a, a test that understands what it is that we're testing. Uh, I'll, I'll give okay. you an example. Yeah. Uh, there, there's, there's a bunch of people who teach people who are who can't see well, short-sighted people, how to see without their glasses. Okay. Uh, and 
it's an interesting thing. I, I did a similar thing just for myself because I'm short-sighted, but slightly, and I don't like to wear my glasses, um, uh, generally speaking. Uh, when I was younger, I only wore my glasses when I was doing visual art, like when, when I was using a, a camera or, or painting or drawing or something, then I would use my glasses, but I w- walked around in the rest of my daily life in my slightly vaseline soft-focus world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I learned a lot of these techniques just by looking at things without my glasses on. Mm-hmm. So I could read, I could read signs at a distance, um, by doing a whole bunch of things to do with contextual sight. Right. And like, like little pulses of squinting to get, um, straight beams of light onto my, uh, retina and, and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was good at it to the point where I could be walking in the city and I was walking with some friends one time and I saw my cousin. He was walking ahead of us. I saw, and I recognized him from his back, uh-huh. 200 meters away. And when I put it out, I'm like, oh, that's my cousin. And uh, so we sped up and caught up to him so I could talk to him. And my friend was really surprised. He's like, you, you have incredible vision. <laughs> and I laughed and I said, no, actually, like, uh, I'm, I'm short-sighted. I'm, I'm not wearing my glasses. Mm-hmm. And so it seemed like some kind of magical parlor trick. Like, he was trying to work out how the hell I, di- I did this. Like, um, but, but for me, it was just... No, yeah, but not at all. Not at all. <laughs> no. This is this is just no. like a painter's eye. Yes. Uh, because when when you look at something in its whole form, like I know my cousin well, so I know the way that his body moves. Yes. And yes. so I could I could see his gait at a distance, and all of the other blurry details worked. It was that that person was about the right height and about the right um, like uh, form, like. Uh, yeah, like uh, uh, all these technical words pop into my mind, which I don't, I don't want to use. Um, the shape of his body was, was uh, matched. Yes. So yeah, yes. but so just by stacking up a whole bunch of these uh, slightly out of focus details, I knew with certainty who I was looking at. Yes. Yes. Uh, so this is this is this style of test, but then a whole bunch of optometrists, and I guess some part of them was uh, this is like pure capitalism. They didn't like the idea of. Um, people teaching people that optometrists weren't as necessary as they were. Uh, <laughs> I do uh, so, have, so they I have my questions about the legitimacy of the, of that industry. Uh, but so they got they got some research put together and they found a whole bunch of people who had been taking these uh, eyesight training courses uh-huh. and they tested them. Yeah, and they were so they were so happy because the tests revealed that these people couldn't see any better than they could before. Right. They couldn't literally see see what they were testing, like letters on a board or something like that, but they could they didn't know how to interpret what they were seeing, which is what was being tested. Or what, what was being taught rather. Is that right? Yeah, well so well so this is the this is the danger of testing because yep. the way that testing in optometry is designed is designed to take away the possibility of being able to see something in context in the real world. Mm. They've re- they've removed ac- actual seeing mm-hmm. from the from the test of sight. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is not a good test for whether you can see or not uh, mm. in the real world. Yeah. Uh, so, but so then again, it raises this question: If you really wanted to test how people see, how would you test it? If you really really want to test yourself, if you can see, how would you test it? Hmm. Uh, people who kn- people who know about eyewitness statements. Eyewitness statements are fraught with errors. Right. Uh, but people don't know that they're making errors in their description of something that they directly witnessed. Mm. So, like, so as a human, if you're trying to avoid, uh, like, 
delusion. You're trying to avoid seeing things in reality that aren't there and misinterpreting reality. How can you do this in a way that you're actually listening and you're actually taking feedback from the world? Uh, because the, the the danger of not doing this is that you, like a lot of people, unfortunately, in their in their practice, they end up not refining the thing that they were trying to refine. Uh, you get people who've been doing something for ten years, but they've been doing it the same way for the last eight years, and they do it badly. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's that, that's very interesting. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it is like learning things is a skill, which is kind of funny to think about. Is a lot of I guess a lot of people miss that important fact. The way the 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 style that people learn. The, the way they observe inf- uh, absor- observe and absorb information, knowing the right questions to ask. Like I like watching the, there's this YouTuber called Chalma and this he's from New York and he speaks a few dialects of Chinese and he does these things like these challenges, like le- learns French in 12 hours. So he stacks up 12 hours of French tutors and get gets them to teach him but he's uh in a sense he's he's a better teacher than his teachers because he knows the right questions to ask he know he knows which points of a language that a person needs to touch on like the pressure points of of the language or the you know the the key differences between different languages that will really expose the the game or exposed to what the language is about, what its assumptions are, what its syntax is. Mm, well, that's a, be- that's a beautiful use of, yeah, skill. Yes. Uh, in, in yoga, there's this, uh, there's this saying mm. that yoga is, is skill in action. Uh, and and this, this is, to me, a beautiful teaching. And right now where I'm at in, in my practice, it really points to this thing of where is the teacher? Hmm. Uh, and so if, if, you, if you try and do something skillfully, like to do it skillfully, you need to learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to learn from your experience. You need to take feedback and make changes and, and, and experiment. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of an experiment, quite, quite perhaps an unethical experiment. Okay. Um, but uh, there was a stage where uh, back in the day in, in my real life, uh, I decided that I wanted to, to uh, uh, do more uh, in terms of criticism. And when I looked around in the people in my life, I realized that I had a whole bunch of critiques that I could offer people around me. Um, that okay. I wasn't because of social convention and, and this and that. And so, sure. and probably and how willing ex- they would be to accept them, I imagine. Yeah, but, but all of the fields that I, I, I live my life in, um, we're all aiming for some, something, mm-hmm. you know, in the arts, in, in, in practice, spiritual practice, mm-hmm. in acupuncture, in martial arts, in like across the boards, aren't we looking for feedback and re- refinement? Mm-hmm. You know, even if someone has a relationship. 
uh, and you can see that relationship from the outside, uh, you can see things that the people can't see inside it. Yes. So if we share information like this, it's great. It's great for everybody. Yes. Uh, I'm always looking for feedback and criticism for the people around me, and sometimes it's difficult to get. Hmm. Uh, so anyway, I did this experiment, and day after day, I sent out emails to every single person um, who I had some kind of practice relationship with uh, across these various fields. Mm-hmm. And I was so surprised because the people who had a spiritual practice but didn't, to my knowledge, have some other form of skill-based development okay. responded really badly to criticism. Ah, um, right. In, in fact, to, to this day, some people have not forgiven me for the criticism that I gave them wow. 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, whereas, well, you for example... You were criticizing their spiritual practice. So I, I mean, it is something, <laughs> obviously, it's, it's something very personal. It's also something that they identify with very strongly, with, with, which is kind of, you know, ironic, but there you go. And, and also, there's a bizarre thing for mm. a lot of people who don't, who don't practice like per- perception mm-hmm. uh, a, a lot of people don't realize that actually quite often their intentions are clear to the people around them mm. yes oh yes I, um, and so, <laughs> people have, and sometimes so have, i'm like people have no idea how, how transparent they are it's, it's funny and yeah whereas people in other aspects of my life especially martial arts mm-hmm uh, because in, in jiu-jitsu, for example, uh, we're, we're training really, really complex techniques. Yep. And when you first learn the technique, it doesn't work. Right. Um, you, have to, you have to do it over and over again, hundreds of times, sometimes thousands of times before it starts to work. Mm. Like, the, the, like the proper f- fine level of the technique. Mm-hmm. So uh, my friends in jiu-jitsu, it, it was nothing. It, it was like just another day at the office. They're like, okay, cool. <laughs> like, right. Uh, thanks yeah. for pointing these things out. Um, uh, I'll try them out next time, you know, like I'll try them out. Like that, that's what we do. Right. Uh, that, that, that's an experimental skill-based practice. Yes. Uh, but how can, so, how yeah, can a so, person live in this world and have a spiritual practice but not have uh, any other skill? How does that work? Or they're, they're just not like dedicated to any skill? Yeah, that's probably that's probably a more accurate way of putting it, or the, or they're not applying themselves to the refinement of that skill. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. A, a lot of people in in their professions or whatever they they can do what it is that they do, and and it, it, it's adequate, and um, and they're not right. particularly interested in it. They're, they're not using it um, like a path or or a way of of personal refinement. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I really like that. Then, um, which it's it's one of the um, Don Miguel Ruiz, he has the, the the four Toltec agreements, and one of them is like, do do your best, do everything at your best, and it's like the 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 idea that the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So if you're gonna do something, go go ahead and really do it. Yeah, well, that's a beautiful practice. Um, yes. Uh, uh, like I, I would add a, a few refinements to it, though, mm-hmm. uh, because like it's gr- it's great to try and do everything at the highest possible level that you can do it, mm. um, but it's but it's important not to sign your name on it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, how do you mean? Well, because so if you because that's a way of identity, right? Uh-huh. So um, people like to identify with their 
um, with mm. with their peaks of things. Right. So, yeah. like, if if someone if someone writes and they try and draw and they can't draw because they haven't practiced drawing, yep. they don't want to see themselves in in their drawing. Right. Uh, because it doesn't have the quality that they are accustomed to identifying with themselves. Yeah. Right. Uh, there's a really interesting experiment they've repeated a whole bunch of times whereby in a lot of cases of self and uh, assessment 80% of people will put themselves in the top 20% mm, yes uh, and, and this is a it's disturbing uh, but when 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 I started to analyze it I realized there are a whole bunch of mechanisms behind this mm. uh, so for example uh, in a class uh, most people aren't trying their best mm-hmm uh, so they don't consider their marks to be really reflective of themselves. Right. And the few occasions they do try, they get good marks. Hmm. So, so they identify themselves with those good marks. Mm-hmm. When, when I try, I can get, I mean, when I try, I'm in the top 20%. Uh, but it doesn't work statistically because when they're trying and getting their top 20%, not everybody else in the class is trying as well. Yes. Right. So, so it's not, it's not actually, completely inaccurate self-assessment it's just biased in that what when does it count and when doesn't it count yeah and our, our education system proliferates this kind of idea because this exam counts towards your end results but this doesn't um so w- we kind of learn that sometimes the assessment counts and sometimes it doesn't so we can excuse a whole bunch of things that we do badly and not put them on our personal scorecard mm. uh so, yeah, the antidote for this, uh, like this thing, try and do everything um, as well as you can. Uh, that's one side of the antidote. But the other side is don't identify with it because if you do, then it will be hard for you to accept criticism. Mm-hmm. It will be hard for you to improve. Yeah, well, I have seen this, this problem occasionally. Like if a person has some natural talent, and perhaps that they have natural talent in a few areas and then they're like they try something new which is outside their area and they try it just like just three times and they're like well obviously i'm not good at this so i give up and it's really well it's a, it's a bit disappointing because it's like where do you think the the greatest gains some sometimes the greatest gains come come in the places where we don't want to look and if we can learn to develop those other aspects of ourselves, then they can be the most fulfilling. We, we have this practice that we do, uh, like uh, every year we have this practice, mm. uh, to, to take a vow not to believe that we are already good. Hmm. Uh, and it, it's a beautiful practice because, uh, if you think you're already good, then you don't, it shuts down your ability to listen. Uh, it shuts down your ability to progress. Mm. Uh, there's a, there's a story, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, uh, about Einstein. Uh, he was at a dinner party and he got, he was sat next to some, uh, young socialite woman and, uh, she didn't know who she, he was. And so she just turned to this kindly old man next to her and she's like, oh, what do you do? And uh, he said, uh, I study physics. Hmm. And, and she was surprised and, and she said, you still study physics? I finished physics three years ago. 
That's cool. <laughs> so, yes. So, do, do you know? Do we already know? Uh, no. If, if we think we already know, then like we don't, we don't know. Uh, right. We can't, we can't continue to know. Uh, it, there are these things that stop us. And, and so again, back, back to spiritual traditions. There's, there's a spiritual tradition in one of the schools that I practice, uh, which says that everything is perfect. Mm. Uh, there's a beautiful passage that reads, uh, this is perfect, that is perfect. Uh, uh, if you take the perfect away from the perfect, only the perfect remains. Mm. Uh, and, and it's beautiful. And it, Where does that come it's, from? It's, uh, I'm not sure. I think it's from one of the Puranas. Okay. Uh, but I can, I can find it. We can fact check. I, I will let you know. You can put it in the comments or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, but, and, but this is a medicine. This is a medicine for somebody who looks around and they suffer because of all of the flaws in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can shore up this idea conceptually and, and in terms of perspective, uh, by looking at things like the, the world of chemistry and, and the subatomic world and, and the worlds of physics. Like this universe is actually full of perfection. Hmm. Uh, once you start looking for it, looking for perfection in this way, um, you can you can relieve yourself of the burden of the the pain of everything having flaws. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can misunderstand it. And so I, I'll give you an example. I was in charge of a, a, a music team. Yeah. And uh, this this music team they were not very good musicians. Right. Um, and so I was trying to help us as a team develop. And so yep. the first thing I tried to institute was what I was taught when I was learning to sing in, in an ensemble was that if you make a mistake, put up your hand uh, while okay. you're singing. Yeah. Cool. And so what this does is it, it allows the person who's leading the ensemble to know that you know that you made a mistake and you know what the mistake was because they will hear it. Um, mm. But if so, if they hear a mistake and no one puts up their hand, they have to stop mm. um, and work out who made the mistake, why the mistake was made, make sure that it doesn't happen again in performance or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I tried to institute this practice in this music team of spiritual practitioners, nobody wanted to do it. <laughs> really? So, so, they, kept, so they were very resistant. Like, so they said, no, I don't think this is practical. Or, or what was the objection? Well, they, they resisted, but they resisted in weird, childish ways. They uh-huh. just didn't do it. And right. I just uh, so so they were, I, um, They didn't tell you directly that they didn't think there was a good idea. They, they just, they like found some excuse or, yeah, just didn't do it. Uh, but, yeah, unfortunately, when I'm in a position of responsibility, like being the, the leader of an ensemble, I, I don't mess around. So when... <laughs> When when people made mistakes and didn't put their hand up, I stopped mm. because that's what you have to do if you're running an ensemble and someone makes a mistake and they, they're apparently unaware of making the mistake. Mm-hmm. And so I just went through uh, systematically in syllogistic logic um, what was happening, um, either this or that. Either this person doesn't realize they've made a mistake mm-hmm. or they don't they, they don't want to acknowledge their mistake. Like that's mm. the only two things that are happening. Even if they think they're rebelling against my leadership or whatever, given the rehearsal space as it's been set up by the rehearsal leader, those are the only two logical uh, conclusions that I can make. Mm. And uh, so I just your, assess- your your observation is correct. 
Well, uh, no, and, and in fact, this is one of the abuses of logic. Um, okay. Anything out, anything outside of these two syllogisms is inadmissible in this circumstance. Okay. Um, if someone is doing it because they hate me and just want to uh, like uh, rebel against anything I, I ask them to do, um, that's not acceptable in the rehearsal context. Um, it, it, it may be true, uh, but it's it, it's not a conclusion that I can that I can make from my position. Uh, so anyway, I hammered away at these people, hammered away, and then afterwards, when I spoke to them as human being to human being, like they they found what I was trying to do offensive. Uh, hmm. because they were working from this idea, like in meditation, uh, whatever happens in meditation is perfect. Uh, whatever happens in, in the performance of service is perfect. That, and, well, that, that's kind of true, but the, the, uh, the key part of it is the improvement is also perfect. Well, yes, but, and, and there's also this, uh, less, uh, less, I don't know what you call it, airy fairy truth. That yep. something that is done wrong is wrong, um, <laughs> and 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 no matter how skilled you are in changing your perspective, you can't by perspective make singing out of tune in tune. Hmm. Um, yes, there are there are realities, there are cause and effect realities, and so unfortunately, again, in in a lot of practice, people find ways of avoiding reality. And if they're intelligent and well-developed and well-versed in a system, like a, a system of logic or a, si a system of scripture, mm -hmm. instead of using that system to develop, they use it to uh, avoid <laughs> avoid reality and avoid development. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that book that I mentioned to you, uh, Black Box Thinking, mm -hmm. uh, he, he gives some incredible examples, uh, like like in the in the legal system. Sorry, the dogs are barking. Uh, in, in in the legal system, the uh, prosecutors will will prosecute someone, and in in the past they prosecuted people. They were found guilty and put in jail. Mm. Uh, but then with with DNA evidence, uh, it was now possible to exonerate a whole bunch of people. Mm -hmm. uh, but prosecutors couldn't accept this new data. Ah. Um, so there would be a person in jail for some heinous crime like a rape or something, and they had the semen of the rapist um, yeah. b before d DNA tests were available. And then when they became available, uh, the prosecutors couldn't accept this new information. And, and apparently they didn't accept it in very systematic ways. Uh, mm. First of all, they tried, to, they tried to make the samples unavailable. Right. Uh, which already seems like an act of disingenuousness, disingenuity. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, but and then when the sample became uh, was forced by the courts to become available, uh, and it came back uh, with a different identity, they claimed that the result was wrong, and they had it retested. Mm -hmm. uh, and then when the result came back again, that this person couldn't have been. Uh, the person who did it, they they started coming up with bizarre uh, explanations for how the person had still done it. Um, like absolutely like bizarre. stealing semen and from a sperm bank and running around using it to cover their tracks. 
Uh, well, uh, no, I mean, but maybe that that has been used as a weird kind of uh, way of reaffirming cognitive bias. But back then, crimes like that didn't exist because DNA evidence didn't exist, so there weren't people trying to <laughs> yes obf- well, obfuscate the testing. Would make it so much more bizarre. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so they came up with with weird explanations like maybe this person had consensual sex before they were raped, and the semen comes from their consensual sex that they had before they were raped by this person we know who raped them. Mm. And and but but then like he's talking about a real case, and so then but then it was pointed out to this prosecutor, well, the victim is eight years old. <laughs> so 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 you're saying what you're suggesting now is that this eight year old girl had consensual sex with somebody before she was raped even though she doesn't no one has said anything about anyone else there's no evidence of anyone else being involved she was raped by some one person who broke into her home um and but they were just and then so they came up with other bizarre explanations well maybe the semen came from her sister who had consensual sex with somebody else on the bed (laughs) and and the semen comes from and it's like but her her sister is 11 (laughs) <laughs> so like so the, the the story and the way of justifying this information is so bizarre yes um, but but this human being like they're not being intentionally like consciously uh disingenuous like mm. they believe so strongly that they found the right person and their identity is so uh wrapped up in them having been right mm. uh about that case and, and not having been wrong and been part of a process that took someone's freedom uh, falsely from them for 10 years or whatever, uh, that doesn't al- – then it, they, they just can't change their minds. Mm. And so this kind of distortion, like if you're intelligent, you can use your intelligence to aim towards the truth. Uh, but But if you have some other agenda in mind, you can use that same intelligence to hide from the truth. Mm. Uh, and and the same thing happens in practice. If you're intelligent and you're really knowledgeable ab- about like your system, your scriptural system, or the theory of your system, you can use that theory instead of developing to hide from development and to pretend that you've already developed. Uh, mm. And going back to this thing of this dialogue that I have so many times that you aren't listening. Yes, I am. Um, the kind of person who says this. Uh, in, in discussion with this person, they are the kind of person who, once you point out something to them and they realize it, they will say, I already do that. Yeah. Well, they say that, oh, well, that's obvious. Yeah. So, so <laughs> we, in practice, we take these cases because, again, it's, it's easy to say, well, what's the Jesus quote? Uh, you point out the speck in your brother's eye, but you don't see the plank in your own eye. Yes. I've been thinking about that uh, a lot lately. Yeah, so again, this is to me is a question of how do you listen? Am, am I listening? Um, and so when I see a plank in my brother's eye, I think, whoa, like what am I looking at? How can I, re- how can I refine my system? How can I refine my way of practice so that I don't have that error? Um, you know, we, we see it all the time. People have terrible posture. It's, it's one of the horrible things, uh, in the modern world. Mm-hmm. Uh, People, people aren't taught anymore how to use their bodies. We don't listen to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, clear, clear example, a baby can cry all day. It can yell and scream at the top of its voice all day, and it will never lose its voice. Mm. Uh, but, your, but your average adult, if they yell like at a sporting match or something for an hour and a half, they will lose their voice. Hmm. Uh, we, like we don't know how to listen to the feedback from our bodies. And, oh, yeah, just something for the people listening. Uh, 
there's a very strange thing. Like when, when you learn to use an instrument like a violin, um, you're taught the correct position to use your, to use that instrument, uh, like you're taught the correct posture so that mm-hmm. you can play that instrument for hours and hours and on end. Yeah. Uh, but modern, modern research shows that people use their phones, uh, like a younger generation on average, like four to six hours a day, depending on the culture. Uh, but most people, when they use their phones, they don't listen to their body at all. And they use right. their phone in a terrible posture, like with the head crane down and like the phone kind of resting against their chest so that it's like collapsing the whole front of their body. Mm. Um, so I would invite anybody who hears this to, to think about the way that you use your body and, and to listen to your body when you are doing things. Like when, when I use my phone, I hold it the, the same place that I hold my chanting book when I chant. Um, ju- right just below eye face. level. Okay. Yeah, in front of my face, just below eye level, about a foot and a half away. And uh, if I'm lazy, I can tuck my elbow into my torso so that the, uh, I'm using a structural advantage, um, uh, connecting my elbow in, into my core. Um, and my body is, is, is straight and relaxed, and I'm not adding undue stress to, to my system when I'm using this piece of technology. Mm. Uh, but this kind of thing, again, we're not taking feedback from what we're doing in our lives. And I, I, I don't see many people who apparently know how to physically use their phone um, mm. at, at this level. So anyway, just because I'm supposed to be um, part of my duties is helping people and it's very difficult to help people. But pointing out <laughs> simple things like this, it's kind of like like cheap points or something I, I just got some points uh, <laughs> all right it's all about merit um <laughs> I do. well yes and no but again so th- there's an irony in this yeah uh, so if you do things if you do things that are meritorious you get merit uh-huh. um but if you do things that are meritorious for the sake of merit you get taxed on that merit it's now less merit meritorious well that makes um, but perfect you, sense that's yeah that's but if, so then just. So you just take it more and more levels. So if you do something meritorious for the sake of merit, but you do it for the sake of merit to defray your merit, do you get more or less merit? Does it, wait, defray your merit? What's defray? Like, like make it less? Yeah, like negative gearing in a tax system. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if a negative gearing exists or out of Australia, but this, this gets quite complex. I don't <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm just having fun. Uh, oh, uh, I, I love irony, and so in terms of this lis- this idea of listening and, and speaking, mm. um, we have we have this concept of hypocrisy, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in fact, it's in in my way of life, is one of the things that we are um, it's we're supposed we're supposed to be for- forbidden um, to wow. to be hypocritical. Um, uh, but when you analyze what hypocrisy is, it's a really interesting thing uh, mm. because there is there is necessarily a gap between words and action. Yes. Uh, there's necessarily a gap in time and there's necessarily a gap in context. So um, if I tell a child to hold my hand, hold an adult's hand when they cross the road, um, if I cross the road without holding an adult's hand, in a sense, I'm being hypocritical. Mm. But, but, but not in any real sense, but just in a sense. And children will often find these hypocrisies in adults because they don't understand the nature of time. 
Right. Um, every, everything is just a, s- a snapshot of the moment. Uh, but when you extend out this concept of hip- hypocrisy, um, in that we are all to some degree hypocritical by the nature of language and, and action, the most hypocritical thing one could ever do is to sell, tell someone else to stop being a hypocrite. <laughs> it, it, it's again like the listening thing. It's just a perfect irony. It's like, uh, what? How, what? Uh, yeah. So, so again, it's this question: like, what? What are we doing? How? How do we? How do we analyze what we're doing? And one of the things that I do with listening is I, I do a whole bunch of simultaneous parallel um, processing translations when people speak and when people act. Uh, I, I ask myself, what is this person actually saying? What does this person, person actually want? Uh, what are their words pointing to? What are their actions pointing to? Uh, and so when someone says, don't be a hypocrite, um, that, that doesn't translate in, into this irony. It usually translates into something along the lines of, you're doing something that I don't want you to do. Uh, and and so when when I start translating people's words like this, you know, obviously you have to uh, attend to the act, the literal meaning of what people say. You can't just assume that you know what they mean. Uh, but when you start making a whole bunch of simultaneous parallel translations, like like sets of subtitles or something around a person, uh, you can start to listen more clearly to what it is that they're saying. Um, yeah, because parallel translations, you mean like multiple interpretations of what they're saying, or uh, yes, uh, yes, yeah, okay. Uh, and and this is a really interesting task of listening because then you can check these meanings, uh, and this is one of the things about listening. Like you want you want feedback. You want to you want to know that you are actually listening, that you are actually seeing um, what's happening. You're not just assuming that you're listening. Uh, you're not just assuming that you're taking uh, correct feedback. Because again, the, the result of that is, is usually uh, a lack of development. Uh, so I have this be- yeah, so I have this system. And again, j- just sort of random ideas because I wanted to share random ideas with some sure. people. Uh, uh, how I watch movies. Uh, in, in, in my tradition, we're allowed to watch movies. A lot of Buddhist monks aren't allowed to engage with any kind of entertainment. Uh, and I think for very good reason. Uh, and so what, I use... What is the good reason? Because it's like a distraction that it, uh, ruins your concentration or what What would it be? Yeah. yeah. Well, there's a whole, bun- there's a whole bunch of uh, uh, common negative outcomes. Uh, a lot of them un- be- being to, uh, with identification uh, and emotional... Uh, uh, identified emotional response. Hmm. Uh, so uh, most entertainment is designed to uh, provoke emotions. Uh, and and they're designed to promote uh, one-sided emotions. You you have a film and you have the good guys and the bad guys, and you're supposed to identify with the good guys. Uh, some people identify with the bad guys because they want a different kind of emotional experience. Mm. Um, but your your the emotions that it causes are primed and preempted. Um, mm. it, it's actually a kind of emotion um, pharmacology, uh, modern right. entertainment. Yeah, with the you, you notice it sometimes, like the music kicks in and everything, and you're and like, oh, I feel you know, excitement or whatever. But it it's kind of cheap. So well, sometimes in a good movie, you know, it's it's a bit more, it's deep, genuine. Mm, so uh, so when I watch a movie, I watch it as a form of practice. 
Right. Uh, I practice the the things that I do when I when I interact with people. We're not supposed to judge people. We're not supposed to take sides. Hmm. We're supposed to have love and compassion for people equally. Uh, so when I watch a film, I tr- I I practice doing these things. Um, and and sometimes, given the way that the emotional setups are made, um, it. It's a it's an incredible challenge because, like for example, you have a, a partnership, a romantic partnership, and so you're you the film is designed so that you identify with one side of this partnership, and the other side it has been designed to sh- to ba- basically to cause conflict and problems and and drama and pain. Mm-hmm. Um, so so everything that this other character doing is in normal terms like it's kind of selfish and bad and wrong and all of these things, but. Mm. Uh, in watching this uh, with this lens of practice, uh, you get a chance to see these mechanisms and and Mm -hmm. strip them away. Uh, This person is the bad person, but are they the bad person? This person is is selfish, but are they selfish? Why are they selfish? Why don't we want them to be selfish? Um, Again, if you translate the the statement, you are being selfish, there's usually massive irony in this statement, um, <laughs> yes. because in brackets you would put about you would put what about me? You're, you're not thinking about me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So again, it for me, uh, all all of this all of this media um, is an incredible opportunity in a compressed form to practice these things. Don't judge people. Don't take a side. Um, d- uh, don't assume that people are wrong. Uh, don't assume that people's intentions are, are obvious. Uh, mm. uh, so th- this is a way of watching movies as a form of practice. Uh, but for, maybe for the majority of people, this is a little bit uh, um, abstract or impractical. Uh, so I, want, <laughs> I wanted to share a practical thing about okay. watching movies. Right. Uh, and so my question is, when you sit in the cinema, where do you sit? How do you choose your seat in the cinema? Uh, you're asking me? Yes. I'm the, the the preferred spot, it's about, let's see, it's in the middle, about two-thirds of the way up. Supposedly, this is where the sound engineers sit in order to tune this, the sound in the cinema. Oh, that's, that's an interesting answer. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, my answer is similar to yours, but in the other dimension of film. Okay. Um, so... Uh, for me, the, the mix of sound is not so, uh, it, it, it's not so important because the experience doesn't change that much depending on your, your seating. Right. Uh, very left and right. Like if you're in the middle, you're kind of okay in terms of the sound distribution. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, sometimes it's, sometimes it's better to sit towards the front or towards the back, depending on how they've balanced the surround sound. Mm. Uh, but I choose my seat based on the visual aspects of film. And so this doesn't happen so much anymore because a lot of filmmakers aren't, aren't cl- trained in what we would call classical film. Um, but uh, in, in earlier, f- like more traditional forms of cinema, uh, mm. the distance of your shot uh, created a distance between, from you and your characters. Okay. So, uh, and, and this comes from analogies in real life. So if you're sitting further back from someone, you see more of them and you see with a, a more pseudo-objective point of view. And the closer you get to somebody, the more intimate you are in your experience of their experience. Mm-hmm. So 
So, and this happens in an analogy of real size. So an extreme close-up, an extreme close-up is an intimate distance. A person's face on the screen uh, should be about the same size of a person's face in real space when you are in intimate distance from them, like three inches mm. from their face. Okay. That's the size that's the size of that shot. So if you, when I go to the cinema, I choose my seat. I'm, I'm not allowed to go to the cinema anymore. But in my old life, when I went to the cinema, I choose my seat <laughs> Who based on the, the side. Uh, well, that, that's one of the, the, the rules for uh, monks in general. And although we don't have this rule, uh, we don't like to rub in other people's faces that we don't follow the traditional rules that the rest uh -huh. of Thai Buddhism uh, follows. So watching films in my room is okay, but I wouldn't like... But I can't go to the cinema because then it's kind of um, a little sure. bit overt in the fact that we we don't we have our own tradition. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so I, I choose my position based on the size of the screen and the and the relationship of that size to the various uh, seats, uh, because obviously all cinemas are set up slightly differently and there's a different ratio of screen size to wh where, for instance, the first seats are and where the last seats are. Um, but I will find a seat whereby. If I hold up my hand and make the uh, analogy to the size of a person's face in front of me, that would be a person in extreme close-up on that screen. Mm -hmm. um, this allows me to use the analogies of natural space and natural distance between people in, in real space. Uh, it allows me to, to, uh, to cut into that circuit when I'm watching film, hmm. which is how films used to be designed. Um, but maybe not so much anymore. Right. Yeah, it does make me think. Uh, many times I had the experience going to the cinema, more leaving the cinema, and I had the experience like, well, the the regular world just seems so small. So that's, yeah, that's probably <laughs> exactly why, because it's too close to the screen. Yeah, and but obviously these are things that you can play with. Um, hmm. Uh, yeah, you can you can sit a little bit closer and see what your experience is. Sit a little bit further back, see what your experience is. Uh, again, this this ties into this thing that I want to talk about, which we really didn't get to talk about so much. Uh, like I think this experiment ha has failed. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, they were, they, but, it was very. It, it was kind of vague what we're, what we're trying to do with the experiment. So, uh, uh, oh, uh, I just noticed the time. Maybe we're running out of time. So can I just chuck in a whole bunch of content at the end here? Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Edit it out Rap rapid fire monk brain dump. Okay. Uh, so uh, <laughs> pe people live in cultures. Uh, and yeah. it, But people kind of assume that they take on the characteristics of the culture that they live in. So uh, uh, Thailand is a Buddhist culture, and people are raised as Buddhists in this culture. Mm. Uh, but a lot of people presume, therefore, that they are Buddhists. Mm -hmm. uh, people who grow up in Christian-based cultures, they believe that they're Christian because they were raised as Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you analyze, if you analyze the, the, what Christianity is, then often you will see that people who consider themselves Christians don't like it's it's kind of a tenuous connection between what Christianity, like the the actual practical functional version of Christianity mm -hmm. and Christianity as most people uh, proclaim it. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, and okay, so we're talking about other cultures, but this same thing happens uh, for people who are raised in a, a scientific culture. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, people pre presume they're scientific because we live in a scientific culture. 
and yes. the fruits of our science is everywhere. Uh, mm-hmm. But if, if, if we analyze ourselves, uh, often we will see that we are not how we imagine ourselves to be. Right. And, and this is really interesting because then this is a, you, you can make a step. Uh, you can say, well, I, I like, I like science. I, I agree with my understanding of science, but do I really understand science? Like, am I really scientific? Do I live my life scientifically? Hmm. Uh, and then you have a choice. Uh, if you, if you like science and you want to be scientific, you can start actually consciously practicing a scientific kind of life. Um, and if not, you, at least you have a realization of, of something about something closer to your true estate. Uh, but what, what's, can you give an example? Because, uh, yeah, people might not think about applying science to your daily life, but it would be something like, I don't know, something like trying to fix your car with an experiment or doing an experiment on your car to try to find out what's wrong with it or something like that. Or what would it look like? uh, That's a massive question Uh, because science is a way of life. But just just some analogies. Um, Like if you have a car, um, you know by experience how much fuel you get from your car. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, like how much mile, the mileage of your car, um, you you know things about your car, um, but but if you look at your life scientifically, like how much do you know about your body? Have you explored your body? Like how much sleep do you need? How much mm. food do you need? Um, what happens when you haven't had enough sleep? What happens mm-hmm. when you have too much food? Um, mm. wh- uh, what does your body actually smell like? Um, mm. Does, does that mean something? Uh, there, there are a whole bunch of... Th- so, so these are practical things, but at other levels, the levels of belief. Um, so uh, do, like most people who come from scientific cultures, they believe in evolution. Um, but they believe in it not as a scientific theory. Mm. They actually believe in it like a religious dogma. Right. And... Uh, and if, from a scientific point of view, you try and discuss evolution with uh, a, someone from a scientific culture, normally they will treat you the same way they treat people who like discuss flat Earth theories. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, as if as if evolution is evolution as we currently understand it is a fact. Uh, right. And their and their response to a, a scientific challenge of evolution is not scientific; it's emotional. And dogmatic. Yes. Um, so there are a whole bunch of views that we hold about the nature of the world that, that come out of scientific culture that we don't necessarily understand. So mm. that, that, that turns science into a dogma rather than a, a procedural process of, of gaining and refining knowledge and information about the world. Uh, yeah, there is this, <clears throat> there's this cultural taboo about actually dis- discussing ideas openly like wacky ideas or you know ideas that are even just a little bit different people a lot of people really don't like it i think it's in part because of the like standardized school systems it's like we're all going to be taught the one thing and so people have they, they have all these homogenous ideas throughout the society they it's very uncommon 
to actually get exposed to different ideas. So it, it takes a person to, to actually travel and get immersed in another culture, not just as a tourist, but, you know, even learning the language and understanding how, how other people think. I mean, that's one, one key way to, you know, to start to open the mind. Yeah, and, and this thing, uh, again, going back to my thesis, which we didn't really explore, uh, mm. are, are we listening? Um, uh, uh, yeah, like, uh, are we listening? Are we looking? Oh, I had a whole bunch of stuff that I wanted to talk about in terms of, like, uh, s- s- this specific field. So uh, mm. I, I was trained and educated as an acupuncturist. Yep. And uh, this is a really interesting field. Uh, people ask this question of, is acupuncture, uh, like, uh, like a thing? Like, is it a science or is it is it just some kind of uh, tra- traditional snake oil thing? comes from another culture like uh what what is it is it yeah is it is it actually a medical science Hmm. Uh, and unfortunately the answer is it can be (laughs) but usually but but usually it's not okay Uh, and and looking at the way that people are trained in in this profession uh there's this weird orientalism that comes about in that education you know you learn about these concepts like chi and uh, they sound very esoteric and and abstract, uh, and they are to some degree abstract, but they're abstractions of real experience. Okay. And so you can, like, uh, in my own body, being an acupuncturist and being of a scientific mindset, I have plotted out all of the channels in my own body. I I've, hmm. I've tested I've tested them. They like they exist as abstract as abstract math almost mathematical representations of chains of musculature and and actual structural components like where nerve endings are and where parts of the endocrine system are mm-hmm. and what w- acupuncture is actually a mechanical process mm-hmm. uh, and and if you understand it as a mechanical process which has abstractions like uh, an abstracted form of energy an abstracted form of blood flow an abstracted form of like uh, lymph flow and, and uh, immune system circulation. Uh, you can practice it as a science, uh, but if you don't, um, again, it's, ju- it's just weird, empty abstraction, and you don't have a system whereby you can accurately uh, perform, take feedback, and refine your practice. Uh, so is, is this a, a science? It, it can be, but often it's not. And, but it, this isn't just a, a problem of acupuncture. The same thing, unfortunately, happens in conventional medicine. And oh, yes. uh, like one of the things that we've seen with the pandemic is that a lot of medical doctors can't practice the science of their profession. Yes. And, yes. and, and so, so few doctors have been willing to make uh, cause and effect problem-solving deductions inside of their own field to right. treat their patients at, at the best possible level. Um, that, yes, that, well, that practice of... Yeah. People talk about, in Latin America, a lot of people talk about how good Cuban doctors are. And I remember I had a student in Brazil. She's a dermatologist. And I asked her, what do you think? Is it, is it true? Like, I know Cuba is sending a lot of their doctors to Brazil. And she was like, no, there's no way that those doctors could be good because they don't have access to the internet. Uh, There's like one street in Havana where you can get Wi-Fi. Well, that was true years ago anyway. And 
I asked, a, I was on a flight and I met this Colombian doctor and I asked him, well, what do you think is, you know, can Cuban doctors be good? And he was like, yes, absolutely. They're good. And he said, it's, it's kind of similar in Colombia. Colombian doctors also very, uh, have a very high reputation. And he said, what happens in Colombia, we get sent to the country and we don't have a lot of fancy equipment. We have <laughs> our brains and, you know, all of the gifts that, that God has given us. And we just have to, th we, we think things out and observe the situation and, and try to, try to figure it out and come up with perhaps novel solutions and use our creativity and our, our thinking. So that, I found that very interesting. And it does seem like, Yes, it's definitely lacking today. It's a, there's a bunch of structural problems. People just receive top-down orders. And, uh, yeah, we're missing those gifts that every individual can give, their perspicacity and, and their creativity. Oh, that, that reminds me. Sorry, I, I know we're running a little bit long, but yeah. internet radio is free. Uh, <laughs> yeah. when, when I was in, when I was in school and I was studying like bi bioanatomy, the, the anatomy of corpses, basically, mm. um, the, uh, there was some interesting s stuff that happened in classes in terms of questions about physiology. And I had a teacher who actually wanted to educate their students. And in, <laughs> in one class, he, so he, he asked questions that were designed like they were traps. Yeah. Uh, but they were traps for the purpose of learning. So in one class he asked, um, we, we were looking at uh, the circulatory system, and he asked, um, we, uh, so if you have an embolism, uh, and, and it's, a, it's an arterial embolism, um, uh, where, where, where would you check to see if it had moved? Uh, like where could it go? When, where could it end up? And is it dangerous? Hmm. And so people were calling out answers in the class, and he's like, hmm, hmm, hmm. And then uh, one one uh, student uh, yelled out, uh, "We don't know. It could end up anywhere, and it could be really dangerous. It could end up in the heart or the lungs, or you know, mm. like it's an embolism. It could end up anywhere." And he, this was a trap, and he jumped on it and he said, "No, uh, this sh this shows me that you're you're just guessing at answers. You're not thinking about the body as a system, hmm. uh, and try and 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 building in your mind a system like a a system that's analogous to a real human body, right? Because if the embolism is in an artery, the artery is going to push it to the extremities, so it will uh -huh. end up in the toes or the fingers. And so wow. if if you if you're working with a model in your head and you put an embolism in into an artery, this is what you will see. But right now you're just guessing, like you are not actually like you're not thinking about the human body and this class in this class you have to think you have to think about the human body wow uh and it's such an interesting thing and so again it's this thing how do we ask ourselves questions and and this is why especially at early levels of a, of learning a thing you need a teacher hmm. because if this girl had asked herself this question where does an arterial embolism end up and she had these guesses and she checked it like on the internet Hmm. Uh, she would have seen her mistake and she could have learned the correct answer, but she wouldn't have realized that she wasn't thinking uh, logically, reasonably, systemically. She was just memorizing like 
like I don't, I don't know guesses that she had heard or or mm. u- using some some the bizarre counter assumptional uh, uh, way of of a- answering questions. Mm. So right. yeah, so are we are we listening? Like uh, uh, unfortunately, most of the time the uh, the answer is uh, pr- probably not. <laughs> okay. Do you have hope for humanity's listening ability? Uh, no, but uh, but it's okay uh, <laughs> because the way with cognitive bias and the way that the world works, like the the fact that people don't listen, uh, like it it has consequences and massive consequences, but yes. people don't realize the consequences. So it's like suffering from a, a disease that you never have diagnosed. Like yeah, you suffer from it, but what can you do? Like all right, you um, always one of my dad's pants, but you don't have a sense of smell, so. It's fine. One of my dad's friends is a divorce uh, attorney, and mm. so I hear all of these stories about d- divorces. And, like, it's bizarre, but after a while you get used to it. Uh, so many times when one person petitions for a divorce, mm-hmm. the other person is surprised. Mm. Wow. And so, like, human, we don't know how to listen. Like, this is the person, this is the person that's closest to this other person in the world, and they have no idea that they want to get out of this thing that they vowed to stay in for the rest of their life. Like, we're, we're, like we, we don't listen. Uh, and we don't notice that we don't listen because when, like, we think that we're listening. Hmm. So, listen. <laughs> uh, I had a class uh, for counselling. Sorry, I know we're massively over time. I had a class for counselling and we had this exercise. And yeah. the exercise was to, to let the... Uh, we had a partner and the other partner would speak. And they would just speak and we wouldn't interrupt them. Uh, but what we would do is we would notice whenever we wanted to interrupt them and we would ask ourselves this question. Why did you want to say that? What was the point of saying that? Um, and so we did this exercise and... Uh, like me coming from my background, this ex- before we started it, this exercise seemed remedial and bizarre. Um, mm. But when I when I listened to people's response to this thing, they found it eye opening and, and earth shattering. Uh, a lot of people failed it, and they just interrupted the person because they absolutely had to say something. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, th- this was the first step in, in people realizing that they spoke for their own benefit and not for the benefit of others. Right and. For counselling students, this is an important realisation. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, that's that's interesting. You know, I I consider myself like a a naturally good listener, but, you know, even then I have to wonder what my blind spots are. Yeah, how would you test it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there is certain things like that that I learned in customer service, like we do pa- paraphrasing, which, you know, can, can be helpful. And sometimes it can be uh, condescending, I guess. Or like, okay, so you're repeating it back to me, with, you know, <laughs> what's the solution or that, that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, yeah, well, in there, there's, uh, there's an interesting point in uh, Jared Egan's book, The Skilled Helper, which it kind of, messed with my mind a little bit when it when I first read it because he was like it, what you want to do is practice empathic listening and he's like it's not just paraphrasing 
And it's not just guessing what they're going to say. It's something else. <laughs> and you have to like try to be kind of one step ahead of the, of the client so you can figure out what they might feel or what they might think in, the, in that situation, which is that it's, it's a tricky thing to do. It's also extremely valuable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, uh, and uh, I'd just like to add one other thing to that uh, yeah. concept. Uh, so one of the really, really essential parts of like an experimental mode uh, is, is falsification. Mm. Um, so, so often when we're communicating with people and we're trying to listen, um, we're checking to see that we understand. Mm -hmm. um, but we're not necessarily checking to see if we've misunderstood. Right. Um, so you, like you can, you, you can feed something back to someone, you can reflect what they've said in mm -hmm. a way that tries to be accurate. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can also interpret it and reflect it in a way that is intentionally, uh, like testing its accuracy. Hmm. Um, and, but, but not in a kind of a, a, a sharp way, but you can just throw things out and see if they get corrected. Hmm. Um, if you can interpret something two ways, you can offer the less likely interpretation first. Um, and, and then also you will see, because the problem with communication is that it's so morphous and two-sided, and often maybe the other person isn't expecting you to listen. Um, <laughs> yeah, so in these ways you can kind of see, like, are they listening to whether or not I'm listening to them? Oh, yeah. Is what kind of dance are we actually in? Uh, I have a story. Uh, a, a, a man goes to one of his friends who's very, very, very rich. Yeah. And he, he says to his rich friend, hey, uh, I, I, want, uh, I want some money, uh, but it's quite a bit of money. And the friend who's rich but also very generous, he's like, well, okay, w what for? Uh, the, the, the friend says, uh, I want to get an elephant. It's like an elephant. Yep, yep, I want to get an elephant. And uh, his friend says, well, what? Like, where are you going to... Well, okay, so you want money for an elephant. He's like, yep, this is... I can get an elephant for this price. He's like, well, where are you going to put it? Like, do you know how much elephants eat? Like, how are you going to feed this elephant? Like, I, I have my, Like, I can give you this money, but I don't understand what... Like, what, what, what you're going to do with this elephant? And, and, and the first friend is like, Look, I came here for money, not advice. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, the, this, this story is beautiful and there's so many ways to interpret it. And mm. one of the ways that we can practice listening is by interpreting stories. Uh, mm. Because like, you can take a meaning from it, but have you taken every shade of meaning from it? Have you looked at it from both sides and seen right. what both people are doing? Uh, do both yeah. sides make sense to you? Um, and, yes. And well, so often... One, sorry, one you thing got, I, I notice a lot of the time, I, I start, when, I, when I journal, I ask myself, hmm, why did, why did this person do this thing? And, so, and sometimes, I, uh, <laughs> a lot of the time, it'll be like something that, that bothers me a little, or you know, something that I allow bother me. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how can I see this from a different perspective? And... It's, it's fascinating because so, so many times I'll, I'll ask myself, well, there, there's, there might be a kind of surface level motivation 
and maybe you know it's an intention which I can see, and that's part of the reason that it bothers me is because I perceive this this one aspect of intention. But actually, when I go a little deeper, there's often many shades of intention. They might even have several contradictory motivations in doing a thing, and it's it's a, it's kind of bizarre and and wonderful to notice how things can be so complex. Hmm. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I was thinking about this last night. Uh, w- one of the other things that interferes with with uh, listening and development uh, is the is the spectrum between uh, confusion and clarity. Mm. And so, uh, again, unfortunately, we compress things into uh, outside of time. So when we have like when we have confusion, um, we 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 kind of want to resolve that confusion into clarity. Uh, hmm. But not necessarily by by creating clarity inside of that confusion. Often we right. will avoid the confusion and go to a different level where we can make clarity. Yes. Uh, and so it's great to sit with confusion because confusion is the again it's a thing which is giving you feedback. There is something here. That it's like a, mm-hmm. a, an opportunity for something. Uh, yes. So we but we can throw that opportunity out because we don't want confusion. Hmm. Um, and it's fine. Not wanting confusion will lead you to creating clarity from that confusion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so it's great to sit with the, the confusion. Uh, and the opposite of this sometimes happens, whereby um, clarity is possible, but instead of choosing the clarity in that situation, we cu- we choose confusion. Hmm. Hmm. When, but but okay, I think of a circumstance where somebody would do that, where it's like. If you tell them something very, maybe quite direct about their life and you say, well, I noticed this, this pattern in your behavior and they're like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> I, I'm completely baffled by what you're saying. <laughs> and it's a kind of uh, co- uh, defense mechanism so they don't have to address what you're saying. Yeah, and uh, there, there are other examples which are perhaps uh, less... Uh less bottom weighted mm. uh, in in the process of infatuation okay uh, s- studies of infatuation show actually that on an uh, on a neurological level uh, being in a state of infatuation shuts down parts of your uh, mind that deal with like <laughs> deal with reasoning and and deal with like hierarchical assessment of qualities and this kind of thing hmm. uh, so there is a con- there is a kind of natural confusion about another person that comes through infatuation. Oh, it's um, like they they could be anything. Yeah, and and you cognitively bias your way into a, a beautiful picture of the person you're infatuated with to create the feedback loop that kicks in the emotional states that you like, which, which come with infatuation. It's mm. kind of uh, sweet. So if kind of messed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. But but this is the mechanism. So yeah. if you go to somebody who is infatuated with this new person that you've met, and you point out to them a whole bunch of clear-eyed things about this person they're infatuated with, mm. um, they they won't want that. Because hmm. they don't want that that clarity. In fact, their infatuation is the opposite of that clarity, mm-hmm. and perhaps they need that infa- that level of infatuation to bond with this person without clarity. So hmm. when the clarity kicks in, they have enough of a bond that they can make a stable relationship. Hmm. Um, if they if they see clear eyed too quickly, uh, probably probably that relationship will fail. 
Um, <laughs> yeah, so sometimes you need it. You need like the same thing with teachers. Uh, like sometimes you need to be able to see a teacher in in an idealized kind of way for a period of time. Hmm. Uh, but but if you keep that idealism past your infancy, uh, it will retard you. Um, hmm. But if you don't at least have it, if you don't give a person the the benefits of a certain kind of hazy miasma of of suspended judgment, hmm. um, a- again you uh, you will maybe miss out on on the whole uh, trajectory of a student and teacher relationship. Hmm. Uh, hmm, but shall we pull up? Stuff? Oh, one sorry, one one last yeah, thing. Yeah, one last one. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, it, it, like so, I, I wanted to give an example of, of a weird experiment that I did. Yeah. Uh, because I didn't, I didn't believe something that I read. Cool. Uh, so a, a lot of a lot of the history of spiritual traditions, um, to me, is actually a history, like a historical record of a certain kind of lab experiment that people do inside of themselves. Mm-hmm. So I read, I, I read a, a story about a particular Muslim saint. Uh, and in the description of this Muslim saint life, uh, the, the, his biographer said that he took a vow never to smile or laugh in this world. Okay. Um, and, and the biographer gave an explanation of this practice, and it was that because there is so, like, this world is a place of darkness. Mm. And so this man, this man wouldn't, wouldn't express joy in this world. I guess he was waiting to express, like, for the true joy of, of um, a divine realm. Not, yes. not, not this corrupted earth. Um, but I, having read the story of this saint, I didn't really believe that interpretation. Mm-hmm. It, like it, it just seemed a little bit dour and a little bit like the biographer had twisted this person's life to fit their own thesis. Mm. So I thought. So I would. I decided I would experiment with this thing and see what wow. happened. <clears throat> uh, but you know, obviously, I wasn't going to do it for my life because I didn't know what the outcome of it would be. Yes. Uh, so I tried to do. I tried to do it for two days. Uh, and did you take it or, re- or you just did it? No, I, yeah, I took, but I just took a, a, a private, like, like a, I, I made a commitment to myself to, to, to do it for two days. Uh, and the result was the exact opposite of what was described by his biographer. Uh-huh. Um, and a similar thing that happens when people like suppress anger. Um, mm. If you, if you stop yourself from smiling or laughing, um, the, the impulse of laughter and joy just sits and bubbles inside, and I couldn't. I couldn't do it. I failed after two thirds of a day. Right, um, I can feel by, it by now. Two, even just thinking about it, yeah, it's like a teacher <laughs> tells you not to laugh. Of course, that's your impulse. Uh, and yeah, so uh, the, the, when we like, we can learn so much from the lives of other people. Uh, if we look at them a certain way, if we experiment, like if we don't just uh, eat things blindly, but we test out, like okay, this is this is a suggestion. This is what some how someone else lived. What was the result of it? Um, let, let's let's see. Let's see in our lives. Hmm. Uh, I I twisted an old Indian saying because we're talking about te- uh, listening. Uh, so the twisted version of an old Indian saying is that um, a reasonable person will listen. A smart person will listen to reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, a wise person will listen to the experience of others, mm-hmm. uh, but a stupid and incorrigible person can only listen to a stick. Mm. Uh, yeah, so hopefully in our lives we're aiming to develop this thing, so we're, we're reasonable enough that we can learn from other people's reasoning. 
Uh, we're wise enough that we can learn from other people's experience. And, and we don't have to wait f like a stupid person for massive negative consequences before we look <laughs> to learn something. Uh, I hope so. Like, <laughs> I, I think a lot of people are getting some very interesting crash courses in discernment. But yeah, we will yeah, see. For sure. Yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. Uh, but I, I have very serious concerns about uh, about courses like that. And just to give a quick analogy, like, yeah. uh, if one, one trains in, in, sorry, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Good. Uh, when, when I analyze this tonight, uh, there will be, a, yeah, like, uh, it will be four pages of criticism. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, yeah, martial arts training. Um, yeah. You, you can, you can dedicate yourself to learning how to respond uh, skillfully in very trying physical circumstances. Hmm. Um, but uh, if a person takes a self-defense course, um, it, it can it can be quite effective to learn some simple fundamental things about close yes. quarters combat. Right. Uh, but but often it's not. Um, often learning a little bit about a field like that is detrimental because hmm. a person has a weird overconfidence mm -hmm. about the the kind of techniques that they are aware of because if the technique works well it should be devastating mm. uh, and, and and the same with clarity of thought it, like if you learn how to see logical errors mm -hmm. that should be a very powerful technique uh, but like the difference between a uh, martial artist and someone who's done six hours of self-defense training mm -hmm. um, there's a massive difference between a philosopher and someone who's thought about uh, clarity of thought for six hours Yes, um, yes. Well, it's, it's like, yeah, maybe a person has a certain upbringing and they learn, you know, maybe two or three heuristics and then they have this, this big life-changing experience and they, they gain some wisdom from it and maybe they, you know, gain one more heuristic and they, and they don't, they still, <laughs> they just have a handful of heuristics and they don't really know how they interplay and that there are all these exceptions to these heuristics and, and stuff like this. Yeah, so if you're going to if you're going to uh, enter the field of close quarters combat for instance, mm. then a self-defense course might be a great way to start. Yeah. Um if if you want to learn about clarity of thought, then a crash course on like uh, logical fallacies and um and like critical thought is a great place to start. Um, but, but again, doing, doing a, a weekend workshop on poetry, um, that doesn't make you a poet. I mean, it could make you a poet if you continue to write poetry. Hmm. Uh, yeah. So it's this thing, like keep, keep going. Uh, uh I, I don't, don't just listen now. Keep, keep listening. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. The, I mean, when they say a crash course in discernment, I'm not talking about a literal, like, uh, you know, classroom and course and logic. I'm talking about quite serious consequences and things going on in the world that people are going to hopefully look at and, and uh, wonder what it might mean and where it might go. Uh, oh. Yeah. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> but uh, 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 of that kind of thing, yeah, I, I wish I was less... Uh, 
Dubious. <laughs> dubious of which part? Uh, dubious that they would of, gain wisdom from it. Yeah, and and in in a system with incredible an incredible amount of like inertia, mo- momentum, an yes. incredible amount of momentum. Uh, the amount of like force that it takes to change the direction of that momentum is mm. immense, and uh, like the one of the laws of thermodynamics, uh, it, that it's the the law that creates the basis of entropy. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm not sure that that there is enough force to overcome the kind of entropy in that system uh, mm. in, in current mo- modern culture. Uh, and and looking at the rise and falls of cultures, I'm pretty sure the 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 sign the historical signs of the fall of our culture um, are all like they're all taking place. So oh, yes, well, I, maybe we can talk about that in more detail another time. It will surely be yeah. an interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, and uh, yeah, anyone who has been with us to the end of this thing. Uh, uh, th- thank you for listening. If you have in fact been listening, and uh, yeah, like so, we we really were trying an experimental thing to to in- in- encourage a different kind of thinking uh, f- in your experience of of this uh, discussion. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't successful. Well, we can um, try again next time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, a, li- a oh, little more so, planning. Yeah, and and so if 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 there is. If you are listening, um, please, please, if you have some time, uh, give some feedback about this uh, discussion. Um, and as as sharp and clear criticism as you can give, uh, yeah, because uh-huh. yeah, for, for for an experiment, you need uh, you need data. So, mm, uh, like, we have our own experience, and you you will have to listen to this for your editing process, and you know, like your sound. Uh, yeah. engineering and and i will have to listen to it because it's part of my practice uh because i'm i supposed to reflect on all of my actions and a speech is an action mm-hmm. uh, but we are limited in how much we can we can understand how uh someone not engaged in the conversation will hear the conversation right well the, so, the best uh, way is probably to get get on tel- the telegram group and people can join on there and, and have a discussion Oh, cool! Yeah, and uh, yeah, I guess when when it comes out as well, um, I can send it to people who give me my uh, daily doses of sharp criticism, and <laughs> and they they can they can hammer it away at some of the obvious things that we did poorly. Great, <laughs> great. Not, nothing like a sharp criticism to help you improve. A beautiful thought. It is fascinating to think that just about everything around us can be a source of information and can add to our discernment. As I mentioned many times, there's that book, Read Em and Reap, by Navarro, I think is the fellow's name. He's an FBI agent, and he talks about the value of observation and discernment of perspicacity of noticing things around you and attempting to interpret them, wonder how these things might have come to be. And, of course, when we observe other people, 
that is so valuable in understanding other people's intentions, understanding what, what they're trying to do, even understanding what they might be thinking in any moment. <laughs> and we can see uh, when we look at people's body language, it's really fascinating what we can discover. There is an interesting channel on YouTube, which I recommend. It's called Body Language Ghost. Well, there's another one. There's uh, Derek Van Shake. That's a, that's a good one. And also JCS Criminal Investigations, I think is the channel. It used to be, used to be called Jim Can't Swim. And this is one where he gets footage of police interrogations and sees how people react and sees the the techniques that the police officers use to interrogate people is really quite fascinating to see people in these very adverse situations hopefully a situation that you or i would never get into (laughs) haven't been interrogated by police for for a horrible crime but when we look at these kind of fringe cases of human nature i suppose we can start to see Okay, so what is, <laughs> you know, what is, what does this really say about us? So all of those are, are fascinating where we can begin to, to learn how to watch what's in people's faces or in their bodies. Maybe we don't necessarily know what it means, but it is fascinating to have a look at it. So that's, this is some interesting resources. So, you can listen to the previous interview that I did with Prad Jeremy, episode 152, on a beautiful thought. And yeah, as we mentioned, there's a t- the Telegram group. So go to beautifulpodcast.com and you look in the social tab and you can join the Telegram group and give some feedback and give some discussion with us. Or email me, Kurt at beautifulpodcast.com. And you can get 50% off a coaching session with me. You go to beautifulpodcast.com and use the coupon code BEAUTIFUL2021. Most importantly, (laughs) listen. Oh, 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 oh,